that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. John chapter 21, verse 7. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This third resurrection appearance of Jesus is the next step that the Lord Jesus takes in leading his disciples away from their reliance on the visible, on what they can see with their eyes, and towards a reliance on that which is unseen. Right? Where there's this 40-day window between Easter Sunday and Ascension when Jesus goes up into heaven, not to be seen in the flesh again until his second coming. And in that 40-day period, Jesus is actually needing to sort of bring his disciples into this transition of, into saying, look, you, you're so used to seeing me with your eyes, but you need to get used to recognizing my presence even when you don't see me with your eyes, right? And so today's gospel lesson is sort of the halfway point of that journey. It's not the first time Jesus has showed up to the disciples. We've already seen in the last two Sundays of gospel readings, Jesus showing up in the upper room, right? Even when the door is closed and locked, he appears and he shows them his wounds and he proves to them that he's been raised from the dead and his existence has been transformed into an eternal and glorious existence. Not only to the disciples, but also to the women on their way to the tomb and to the two on the road to Emmaus. When we kind of put all the gospel stories together, the um, appearance uh, that's recounted in today's gospel seems to be his fifth uh, or maybe his sixth resurrection appearance. We, um, we have already seen in, in some of these resurrection appearances some confusion as to what Jesus looks like, right? The apostles, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're walking with him for a couple hours and they, they don't clue in um, that it's Jesus until he unpacks the scriptures and breaks the bread and all of a the sudden their eyes are opened, right? It's no coincidence that what we heard in the conversion of Paul, right? The scales fell from his eyes. There's this moment of, oh, now I see, now I get it. But um, whereas there's also been continuity in the past, right? When Jesus shows the wounds to the disciples in the upper room about a week before this event in Galilee, he's showing that it's him, it's the same Jesus that was crucified just a week or two before. But now Jesus appears different again. They don't recognize him right away. And he also doesn't appear in the same room. That's something that really struck me as I was reflecting on this Sunday's gospel. He shows up 100 yards away. It's a very interesting picture, right? Jesus showing up a hundred yards away and looking different. He's far away and difficult to recognize. And I think, in a way, actually, then this gives us a picture that, that we can relate to. Because, of course, by his Holy Spirit, Jesus is near, right? We know that from the sure word of Scripture, that he stands at the door and knocks, that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. So I want to be clear about that. Jesus is near, spiritually speaking. But physically, right, he's far away. He's, he's at the right hand of the Father, right? And sometimes he's hard to recognize. Isn't that part of the Christian pursuit that we're all engaging in on a day-to-day -day basis of, Lord, I, I want to see you more. I want to know where you are. I want to know you more fully. That we, there's some analogy between the disciples who have Jesus appear 100 yards away and, and ourselves, who it sometimes feels like Jesus is like 100 yards away. Like, okay, Lord, I know that you're near, 
Is, is that you? Right, that, there's that sort of that middle distance. He can sometimes be far away and hard to recognize. But nevertheless, the disciples knew that they were in the presence of the Lord. Even at 100 yards distance, the Lord was in their midst. So the question I want to unpack this morning is, what was it in the gospel account that sort of opened their eyes, right? How did they go from just perceiving some, what they thought was just some random guy walking on the shore to recognizing, oh my gosh, Jesus has showed up again, right? For them, the, the disciples would be the third time. Jesus showed up again. There's a few aspects, I think, to sort of this recognition, this eye-opening that I want to tease out. But in order to understand them, you have to remember that this is not the first time that Jesus has said, throw your nets out again, right? A, a couple years before the event recorded in this morning's gospel, we have the incident recorded in Luke chapter 5, which is very similar, right? The disciples have been out all night. They've caught nothing. And Jesus said, goes out in the boat with them. He says, put out again. And Peter says, right, famously, well, we've been fishing all night, but okay, at your word. And so they fish, and, and, and they, they have so many fish, their boats start to sink, right? And, and Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, Get a, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Do you remember that incident from the Gospels? Yeah? So, so look at the similarities. The disciples have been out all night. Check, check. They've caught nothing. Check, check. And a man tells them to cast out again, right? I think it, that must have been the first kind of bell ring for John, like, wait a second, we just caught nothing and someone's telling us to cast out again, right? This sort of familiarity of the command. And that's the thing I think has some application for us that's worth pausing over. Um, Jesus reveals his presence to us by the familiarity of the command, right? What I mean is the voice, him speaking through the voice of conscience. That we've all heard all the rules we need to know about the Christian life already. Right? Hopefully in a Christian family, if you grew up in one, or we're blessed to be so. Maybe at church and sermons and teaching pastors, you already know what God wants you to do. But the Holy Spirit, which is the voice of Christ, it's called the Spirit of Christ in Romans, speaks through the voice of conscience, reminding us what we should do. And when that happens, that's not just you being a good person. That's the Lord drawing near, speaking a familiar command. You know, some people, psychologists have sometimes uh, tried to say that the voice of conscience is just the internalized voice of a parent. And part of conscience is that. But it's actually the, the negative part of conscience, the part that just says, no, no, stop doing that, right? That, then maybe that's a gift that God gives us sort of internalized from our parents. But that could never, in fact, even the psychologists themselves initially, they, they never attributed positive moral command, go and do this good thing, right? That's not the superego, that's the Holy Spirit that says, go and show love to that person. Right? Say that kind word, say that you're sorry, right? When we positively live into God's commands, when we hear that voice of conscience, that's not just something in your brain, right? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the nearer presence of Christ reminding you. So, it's a source of great comfort when you feel a check in conscience, like, oh, I think I should go do this thing or, or not do this thing. Um, no, there should be a sense of comfort there, like, oh, wow, the Lord has shown up. The Lord himself cares so much about my, my salvation and my life in him that he's personally reminded me of the truth into which I should live. So when you hear a familiar command, that's a first clue 
wait, I think Jesus might be nearby. The voice, um, the command is familiar, but then what happens next is what really clues John in, right? It's this huge cache of fish. They've caught nothing, and now they have 153 fish. I love the particular number, sort of showing this isn't just some sort of someone was remembering the first time he did it. No, no, this was the time he pulled in 153 big fish. And, you know, fishing was not a hobby for them. This was the provision of food. This was sustenance. This was what they needed. In the face of circumstances that seemed bleak, there's all of the sudden, there's this bountiful provision. Now, no science could ever prove, I mean, prove, that Jesus caused those fish to swim into the net. And yet, sort of just plainly perceiving what's happening, clearly Jesus is the one, the Lord of the universe, you know, who's called very clearly in the Psalms, the Lord of the sea. He's calling the fish into that net. Faith perceives, and even just circumstances, but yet skeptics could, a skeptic could always say, wow, what a fluke, right? And you caught nothing, and now you've got 100, you know, 153 fish, and your net should have broken with that quantity of fish, but they didn't. Hey, fluke on fluke. Yeah, fluke on fluke, or God is real and is in your life. <laughs> Jesus... Um, we know that it says in the Psalms, he's the one who makes sure that the wild lions get fed. How much more is he taking care of his children? So when provision comes, to also recognize the hand of the Lord, that it's not God far away, sort of, yeah, I'm going to send some gifts to my people, right? He is near. He's drawn near to us, and he's providing our daily bread and the things that we ask him for. Now, I want to say, um, sometimes... God permits his servants to suffer greatly, right? Who, servants who are praying for some provision they don't get. But look at that calling of St. Paul. It's haunting. Right at the beginning of his ministry, I will show him how much he has to suffer, right? So it's not to say that just because provision comes from the Lord that therefore Christians will always be provided for. Sometimes in his mysterious ways, the Lord tarries with provision. It's also the case that sometimes even material provision can be a trap, Right? We know that the love of money, as we were studying today in Sunday school class through John Chrysostom's sermon, could actually be a trap, right? So, we, so I don't want to put in some Locke-type thing like provision and God are sort of like, like this. It's not like that. But when we've been provided for, we know that it has come from God. Is that a subtle distinction? Is there, is there a little bit clear? I realize it's a bit vague even as I'm saying it, but I think it's important to keep that distinction. So there's a familiar command. There's abundant provision when first uh, it, things seem bleak. And that's when John recognizes, right? It's the Lord. And John's always the first to recognize. He goes to the empty tomb. He's risen. Familiar command, familiar blessing. It's the Lord. And Peter with his zeal, you know, it's weird. Like, why does he put on clothes to swim? I think it's probably because he was just kind of working in his undies to be like, you know, capable, you know, moving around the boat. And so he doesn't want to show up in his undies. So he puts, so he puts on his, his overclothes. Um, but I just love that zeal. And I love that John sort of like slightly kind of teases him. We are only 100 yards away. We're going to be there in like a minute with the boat. But Peter couldn't wait. He just jumps in. It's a, it's a very happy picture. Peter goes to the shore. The six are right behind him. It says that there are seven together. Um, and when they arrive on the shore, something is different. Something's not quite what they expected. When we pay attention to the details of the gospel account, Jesus must have looked different than he had a week before. Remember, they've just seen Jesus in the upper room about a week before. 
But all of a sudden, they're thrown off their guard and because John recounts, now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Right? John would only say that if there was something that was throwing them off about who it was. Right? Something visual. I think he appeared differently. Maybe he didn't have the marks of the nails. Maybe there was something different. Why did he look different on the road to Emmaus? We don't know. But I think he did appear visually different. And when we take that piece of data, we can see this is the Lord going that next step to say, stop relying on the eyes in your head. Right? I will be near you even when you don't see me. Right? He's getting them used to recognizing his presence first when they're not sure visually, and then ultimately after the ascension, right? When the Holy Spirit comes and they know that Christ is with them by the Holy Spirit. He, his, uh, he looked different, but the disciples knew that it was Jesus. They knew because of familiar command, familiar blessing. But I want to say in some deep spiritual sense, I was trying to think, you know, how to, how, it's hard to describe the interior things, right? But imagine you're in some public space and there's like a power outage and the lights go off and your spouse or your best friend um, takes your hand like in the darkness. You would know it was your spouse's hand, right? You'd know. You would just know because you're familiar with the feel of the hand and you just would have that sense that, oh yeah, that's, that's my spouse. I can't see. I can't prove. But I, but I know that I'm holding my wife's hand right now, right? I think the knowledge of the presence of Jesus is something like that. It's, it's hard to describe. Um, it's as if you're in a dark room, but, but I, I know that the Lord is near. That's what the disciples had. They knew it looked different, but they just knew it was Jesus. That's why this account is in the Gospels. And it's not just some story about, oh, we met some guy on the beach one time, right? They met Jesus on the beach. How do they have that certainty? The linchpin, familiar command, familiar blessing. The third thing is Jesus has invited them to a meal. Come and have breakfast. One of my favorite lines that the Lord says in the Gospels, come and have breakfast. And it's not an ordinary meal, it's a miraculous one. Where did that fire come from? Where did the bread come from? How did he already have a fish? Right? So I didn't have any fish until like 30 seconds before that. There's this meal already, it's a miraculous meal that... I think when we put the dots together, Jesus just made out of himself. You know, one of the things I remember, I was driving about a year ago, and this is one of the occupational hazards of being a priest, is these sorts of things comes to mind. I thought, what clothes was Jesus wearing in his resurrection appearances? Right? Because he, he, his body, he died and was raised, but clothes don't die and are raised. So I, thankfully, some medieval theologians actually fit, thought through that one and the most probable answer is they were miraculously made in the moment. So if you ever wondered about the resurrection clothes. But it's the same thing with the meal. Jesus has made this um, miraculous meal. And when they invite him, when he invites them to eat this miraculous meal, then that's when John says, they all knew it was the Lord. Do you see the parallel already, right? When Jesus invites us to this miraculous meal, we know it is the Lord. One of the great comforts and consolations and joys for me of worshiping in God's church is that strange experience of having communion. It's not emotional. It's, not very, or it's rarely emotional sometimes, but it's very subtle. But there's this sense of, wow, that first few minutes after receiving communion, it's like, is the, has the light changed color? I don't, like, it's hard to describe what it is, but what it, it's the Lord. 
the Lord has promised us that this is his body and this is his blood, and which means he's here, right? When it has become in, through his own spiritual transformation, how it happens, no one knows. But when it's his body and blood, that means the, we're in the presence of the king, right? We know it's the Lord. We know that he's here with us through this mysterious meal. Where did the fish come from? We don't know. How is bread his body? Who knows? But we know that it's the Lord. This is, in fact, I know some of you are kind of newer to the Anglican tradition. All of the ceremony, every piece that you see, whether it's really fancy, a really fancy cup or all this brass and clothes and gestures and kneeling, it's all because we believe by faith that we're in the presence of the king. This would be raw idolatry if it was worship, if it was in honor of anyone else, right? We're not allowed to honor bread or brass or fancy things. We, we're, we honor the king who we believe is present with us. So we take a knee, right? We kneel for communion. No one else is worthy of kneeling except the Lord Jesus, right? That's whose presence we are in the midst of. So um, I invite you to sort of put your spiritual radar out, as it were, for when the Lord shows up on the shore, you know, near and yet some distance. He's, he's here with us. Had to discern his presence and then in faith to say with St. John, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. You know, someone else could say, I'm just having some religious experience. Who cares what they say? I know that it's the Lord. It is the Lord. Here with us. Amen.